0: are made possible by donations from people like you. So the topic for today's talk is my reflections on the chapter we read quite a few weeks ago now on false suffering and true suffering. I didn't get a chance to summarize the chapter on practicing with relationships. Um, But before we start to talk about um, Joko's chapter, I just want to say a few words about the uh, New Zealand tragedy. There are some acts of violence that are premeditated and cold-blooded based on wanting to incite fear, based on ideology. terrible consequences. The intention is clearly to bring fear into the world and create division. There are some acts of violence that may be impulsive and may be from a place of fear. For example, sometimes people experience, um, um, someone I was working with in Bowerville where two youths broke into that. took an opportunity to break into the house and uh, it was a violent act. Two different scales of violence but both have either the intended or unintended consequence of bringing fear into the lives of people who previously felt safe. We can only imagine the the trauma and the terror of that act of terrorism in New Zealand and how that's going to affect people in Christchurch and New Zealand and the rest of the world. But also even that, that impulsive act of violence in Barajal brought fear into the lives of that um, family, who can now no longer walk down the streets of Bowerville and feel safe. There are so many of these acts that we can witness on on the news every day. And I know from my own consulting rooms I often meet with people who feel sometimes overwhelmed and helpless and despairing as to how to address this or respond to this this kind of violence. There's a lovely section in the, uh, a very ancient uh, sutra in Buddhism called the Dhammapada. And the the lines here could help to guide us as to how we respond. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. Inspiration, our intention in coming together here is to open our hearts and to sustain that sense of connection and love. Even when these, these acts of terror occur. The connection that we realize in our practice, that we are all one and indivisible, that we are all connected and interdependent, Indra's jewel net. How we respond to each other here today and for each other moment of the day, how we respond to our family and friends and strangers that we meet will all be our way that we can respond to these awful acts of violence. The chapter um, of Jokos on the topic of suffering and uh, she talks off, she starts the talk by talking about the two sides of practice, like the two sides of the one coin this two sides of the one coin comes up all the time in in Zen Buddhism and Buddhism in general. And often it goes by these abstract names, the absolute and the relative. Um, On the one hand, we practice on the basis of what is often referred to as no gain. In Soto Zen meditation, you'll often see that expression, practicing with no gain in mind. From the absolute perspective, this simply means that enlightenment is not something or realisation or awakening is not something which is to be gained somewhere in the future no matter how hard we might practice that is the, that's an error to see it like that. In Soto Zen enlightenment is always here and always now. We don't sit to become enlightened You sit because it's an expression of enlightenment. Zazen is practice realization together both at the same time. Of course, This very, very simple practice of just being, just being each moment, is very, very simple but also difficult. Hence the other side of the coin, the side where we often reside most of the time in the relative world, the world of us and them and and, uh, the world of problems. in this world we are aspiring to alleviate or reduce suffering in ourselves and in the world. From the other side of the coin from the absolute side there is no suffering because there are no separate beings who suffer. But from the relative side of the coin there are suffering beings. Practice is about bringing these two perspectives closer and closer together. So from the perspective of practice being about reducing or alleviating suffering Joko talks about some understandings of suffering. In her talk she talks about true suffering and false suffering both as a way of distinguishing between two different kinds of suffering and also as a way of practicing with suffering. I probably prefer that I probably use different concepts. I probably talk about primary and secondary suffering because whether it's true or false suffering, it's still suffering. Um, Whatever we call it, it's, it's a nice. I think that the, the distinction is good and the distinction is important. Um, the um, Primary suffering is is also about the kind of suffering that is an inevitable part of being a human being. And it's also a way of practicing. Basically, Joker will say, as we just read in the reading, uh, just be whatever that suffering is. (coughs) Whether it's physical pain, whether it's jealousy, anxiety, anger and she talks about being it on a physical level. And I think the reason for this distinction is important because um, when she talks about false suffering, or what we might call secondary suffering, the false suffering or the secondary suffering is kind of like a resistance to the primary suffering. So we're kind of like generating another level of suffering on top of the primary suffering. And we're generating that through our resistance to open up to the pain, whatever the pain is. And as long as we're caught in the sense of a separate self, we're always going to be feeling some sense of unease. We're always going to be feeling some sense of lack, as long as we get identified with a sense of separateness. And the actual practice of coming back to the direct experiencing of that suffering is the way of actually closing that gap. Of seeing that we are not separate. So one of the reasons why she makes a distinction between, say, sensations or perceptions and thoughts or stories is that it's 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 harder to actually hold on to sensations and perceptions. You know, when you're doing your zazen practice and you're. Focusing on the sensations, you do have that sense of how quickly they're coming and going all the time. If anything's coming and going, actually. Or it is coming and going. If there's no thing, we can actually sometimes get a really good insight into impermanence by really focusing on the sensations and the perceptions. But of course, the thoughts and concepts and stories, beliefs, they're a lot stickier, and mm. that's what we can, it's much easier to hold on to a belief. And we, again, we can witness how these beliefs, these ideologies, also create violence and separation. Um, but even in our ordinary, everyday lives, the, uh, you can observe how easy it is uh, to hold on to a thought. Um, than it is to hold on to a sensation. A sensation is a bit more ungraspable. But well, a thought's very graspable, a belief is certainly very graspable. Well, I we can observe in ourselves and in others simply how easy it is for people to hold on to an identity. Um, um, and that's not to say that we we know we we, we 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 have to we have to live in that in that relative world of identities and ideas and, and beliefs that's and and stories. It's all the, the way in which human beings function. Um, but the 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 it's about the what we we're talking about and what Joker's talking about is to actually see how when we actually hold on to and get really inflexible about that, if we get really passionate about our opinions and we can't just hold our opinions lightly, it becomes very problematic. And we're less likely to be able to be open to listening and trying to understand someone else's perspective and opinions if we're just hanging on to our own opinions. Um, So when, when we chant our practice principles and talk about um, caught in the self-centred dream and holding on to self-centred thoughts. It's, it's quite true that we can, we can hold on to these thoughts. And our practice is to actually observe how that unfolds in our everyday life, in our own lives, in our relationships with our partners, with our family, with our friends, with our work colleagues, and uh, just see how we can actually um, bring our practice of impermanence to this area of beliefs and thoughts, because um, beliefs, thoughts, opinions, they're just as impermanent as any other aspect of life. And perhaps the one thing that we find hardest to let go of is our attachment to our sense of an ego self, with our sense of a separate self. And in many ways, you'll see that running through jokers' talks and running through the talks of many Buddhist teachers. That if we can cut the knot of our attachment to the self as self-existing as being something that can be separate, if we can un- untie that knot, that's where the, we can untie most of the suffering that we experience, that we're talking about in Buddhism. As long as we are attached to the sense of the separate self, we will suffer because um, it's inevitable that um, that will generate a sense of an illusion of something to be protected. And we will always be walking around with this uh, uh, illusion of the need that there is a separate self that needs to be protected. And, uh, and and uh, hence the, the fear gets projected both inwards and outwards all the time. And of course, the separate self is always afraid of dying. <laughs> so we create lots of different kinds of projects, whether it be accumulating wealth or accumulating fame, to try and sort of keep away that that fear of death or the anxiety of non-being. So, you know, you will see in Zen literature often this this talk about the great death, you know, dying before you actually die, the death of the ego, which is not something that just happens once. It's, we don't have this one big experience and then we never have a sense of a separate self ever again. But it's something that we have to keep practicing over and over and over again, eventually the, the, the actual hang, hanging on to that sense of separateness gradually wears away, but it's a continual practice, it's a gradual practice, you get the sudden insights, in, but you also need the gradual lifelong work to die to this sense of separateness. And that's when you break through to the Absolute. Being just this moment, there is no thing, there is no separate thing. If there's no separate thing then everything is is connected, everything is interdependent. Everything is arising from one condition to another condition, dependent co-arising. And there is no. uh, So, the practice of non attachment in Buddhism is not about emotional non detachment, it's about being able to non attach in the sense of identifying as a thing, as a separate thing, or identifying with a belief. It's about the ability to experientially be impermanence. We can all see and understand impermanence conceptually, but the practice is to be impermanence. Um, that's where the, um, when we when we focus more on the sensations and the sounds, perceptions, we start to, um, it's a little bit easier then, and then letting go of the thoughts and the, uh, we can, you know, what jokers, you know, practice of labelling or the sense of disinvesting, from that uh, identity with thought by labelling. And coming back to the sensations and coming back to that sense of I've um, Just got one quote from the chapter, page 108. Um, so until we bow down and bear the suffering of life, not opposing it. What you say is not opposing the suffering of life, not resisting it. Resisting or opposing the suffering of life creates the false suffering or the secondary suffering. So when we bow down and bear the suffering of life, not opposing it, but absorbing it or being it, being just this moment means being just this moment of joy, but it also means being just this moment of sadness or being just this moment of anxiety or being just this moment of anger. And there's no evaluation about that. Being just this moment of joy is just as much the absolute as being this moment of anxiety. So, until we bow down and bear the suffering of life, not opposing it, but absorbing it and being it, we cannot see what our life is. And by this she's talking about the other side of the coin, the absolute. That we ourselves are alive. This is by this by no means implies passivity or non-action, but action from a state of complete acceptance. Even acceptance is not quite accurate. It's simply being the suffering. We um, we overcome the suffering by being the suffering, by stopping by stopping opposing it and resisting it. It isn't a matter of protecting ourselves or accepting something else. It's complete openness, complete vulnerability to life. And, surprisingly enough, this is the only satisfactory way of living our life. So, when we realize ourselves as impermanence. We're realising ourself. And you'll find all these different kinds of concepts in Zen. Concepts such as no self or the unborn or the undying or Buddha nature. All these, these concepts. Buddha nature, the unborn, the undying, the no self. This is all about realising impermanence. Not in our heads, not conceptually, but directly by being just this moment.